Okay. I am reading from Revelations 12 and 13. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up by God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she was placed, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Okay, Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads. With 10 crowns, I think it's diadems, but you can, anyway, with 10 crowns on his horns and blasphemous names on his head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to, and to it the dragon gave his power 
and his throne and his great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marvelled as they followed the beast and they worshipped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haunty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemes against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth and worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb, of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain by the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of all saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship his first beast, the first beast. Most mortal wounds were healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image of for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who understands calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. All right. Thank you, Selena. We are, yeah, we're looking at this passage today. It's going to be probably a confusing one as you hear it read. Uh, and so I have some good news for you. And that is that we will be having a Q&A session again in our sermon today. So if you have questions as we go through the sermon, uh, type them up and send them to Les. You don't have to wait till the sermon is over to send your questions. You can send them anytime as you have them. Um, and we will do a Q&A session after the sermon. Uh, Les will lead that discussion. And like I said, I expect there will be some questions today because we're discussing a part of Revelation that I think everyone who reads Revelation has questions about this part of the book. 
And before we get into today's passage, let me give you a quick recap of where we are in the book. We've been looking at a series of visions that John saw. And we said John sees them one after another, but they don't happen one after another. They happen all at the same time. And each of them gives a different perspective on what John has seen. So the first vision is in Revelation chapters four and five. He sees God's throne room and it's amazing. There's worship happening of God and the lamb. And and we said that's happening right now. And that scene of worship in heaven, of God being in control of everything, is the backdrop against which all the rest of Revelation happens. And then in chapters six and seven, John sees these seven seals, and they show that suffering is going to happen on earth between the first and second coming of Jesus. And they show that God uses this suffering to purify his people, and at the same time to bring justice on the unbelieving world. And then last week, we looked at chapters 8 through 10. We saw seven trumpets and two witnesses, again, happening at the same time as these previous visions, but they show us another angle or another perspective. The trumpets show us that God uses suffering to get the attention of people who don't believe in him. And while people ignore God when they suffer, they listen to God and trust in him when they see Christians suffering. And so at this point, we've seen a lot of suffering in this book. And you may be starting to wonder, if God is in control, why is there so much suffering in the world? And today, we're going to step into another vision, another vision happening simultaneously to the previous visions. And it's going to help us start to answer that question. And what we're going to see is the reason there's so much suffering in the world is that there is a cosmic war going on that Satan and his forces are opposing and fighting against God. And those of us living on the earth are part of that fight. So today we're going to look at this war. We're going to have an art of war themed sermon. So for each sermon point, I'm actually going to open us with a quote from Sun Tzu's classic book, The Art of War. And what we're going to see in the sermon today is that life is war, but we are on the winning side. Life is war, but we are on the winning side. And we're going to look at know your enemy, know his strategy, and know how to beat him. But first, let's pray. Father, I pray for our time together today. As we look at your word, that you would give us wisdom to understand, that you would give us clarity on seeing how this connects to our lives and our world today, and that you would give us endurance, that you would help us to be people who um, stand for you and stick with you no matter what opposition or what difficulties or what trials we may face. Uh, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be people who, who live in a way that conquers our enemy and stands for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first point today is know your enemy. And we're going to start with a quote from the Art of War. If you know the enemy and know yourself, your victory will not stand in doubt. As followers of Jesus, if we want to be victorious in this spiritual war that we're living in, an important first step is to know our enemy. And our passage today introduces us to that enemy. Actually, it introduces us to many enemies. Among them, there's a dragon and two beasts, the sort of unholy trinity. The the enemy tries to make himself look like God, but he's a, a weak and cheap imitation of the true God. And who is this enemy? Well, the first enemy we're introduced to in chapter 12 is called a dragon. 
Now remember, symbolism is huge in Revelation. We're not saying Christians believe in literal dragons that fly around in the sky. But think about the image of a dragon in the culture that the book of Revelation was written in. I know in Chinese society, dragons are these majestic, great, friendly helpers. But in European and Middle Eastern society, they're quite different. In European and Middle Eastern society, what do dragons do? They pillage and plunder and kill sheep and terrify and harass helpless villagers. Dragons are not creatures that you want near you because their presence brings death. And that's what John wants us to feel when he calls our enemy a dragon. He wants us to feel the reality that our enemy wants to pillage and plunder and kill and terrify and harass and bring death. And John tells us in this passage, this dragon is actually Satan. So throughout the Bible, we see the truth that we see in this passage again and again. Satan opposes God and fights against God's plans for the earth. Satan is the enemy from the start to the end of the Bible. Satan is the enemy from the Garden of Eden to the last pages of Revelation and everywhere in between. Satan is opposing God. Satan is opposing God's purposes on the earth. It's kind of like Star Wars. Do we have any Star Wars fans? You know, in Star Wars movies, Palpatine is always the bad guy, right? Like there are other bad guys. There are other armies who fight for him, but it always comes back to him from start to end. He's always the power behind the evil power. Even when other evil powers seem more present, seem more visible, he's always the ultimate bad guy. That's how Satan, the dragon, works. He's always the bad guy. He works through lots of subordinates, but he's always the one pulling the strings. He's always the one calling the shots in this war against God. Satan hates Jesus. He wants to fight against Jesus. And we see in this passage, when he realizes he can't harm Jesus, he comes after Jesus' people. If you didn't get it, the, the woman that we're introduced to in chapter 12 is the people of God throughout history, the Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. And what we see in this passage is we, as the church, have an enemy who hates our God and who hates us because we belong to our God. That's, we've been seeing in Revelation that Christians are going to suffer more than the rest of the world in life. This is a huge reason why, because we have an enemy who hates us and wants to harm us. And so to live the Christian life properly, we have to live with an awareness of the fact that Satan is real. And he's at work in our world opposing God. And while it's important for us to know that we have an enemy, it's important to know that he is opposing us. There's another thing about him that we need to know. And that is that he is a loser. We see in this passage that Satan was allowed to stay in heaven for a while because God let him. But the moment God decides, I want him out, he's powerless to stick around. We see that there's a war in heaven. Satan and his forces are thrown down to earth, which is a picture of the defeat that Satan suffered in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Satan has been defeated once and for all. And now we see he's just waiting out his time until God crushes him once and for all. We have an enemy. He's strong, but he's a loser. He's defeated and he knows it, but he's still putting up a fight for as long as he can. And in that fight, he pulls in allies to fight alongside him. So in chapter 13, we're introduced to two of these key allies 
who are also our enemies. And both of these satanic helpers are called beasts. Now, again, they're not literal beasts, but think about the picture. If you're out on a hike, do you want to come across something on your hike that you would describe as a beast? No, 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 thank you, because beasts are terrifying and harmful creatures. Beasts want to eat you. The dragon's allies are terrifying and harmful, and they want to eat us. And who are these beasts? Well, the first is government systems that call us to place our hope in them rather than Jesus. Now, I know you're like, where in the passage are you getting that, Eric? Let me tell you. We're introduced to this beast in 13.2 as being like a leopard with feet like a bear's and a mouth like a lion's mouth. Now, like I've been saying all along, we won't understand Revelation if we don't know our Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, we are introduced to four beasts. And the beasts are, the first is a leopard, the second is a bear, the third is a lion, and the fourth is described as terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And Daniel is told in this passage that these four beasts are four kings who will arise out of the earth. And so here in Revelation, all of Daniel's beasts have just been condensed into one. So what we see is that this beast is a super powerful ruler or, or government system in the world. And we see that this beast is at work in chapter 13 for as long as Satan tries to persecute the church in chapter 12. We see that the beast has this power for 42 months. In chapter 12, the church is protected from Satan for a time and times and half a time or three and a half years. Three and a half years equals 42 months which is symbolic for that whole length of time between Jesus' first and second coming. And so this beast operates, it's not just one king, one ruler, it's the world system of government and rulers the entire time between Jesus' first and second coming. This beast is not an individual person or an individual empire, but it's all of the rulers and empires that oppose God and persecute his people throughout the time between Jesus' life on earth and his second coming. And here's what that means for us. If the first beast is world rulers who persecute the church or government systems that persecute the church, any time a world ruler or government persecutes the church, Satan is at work through that ruler or government. That could be in really clear and explicit ways like, arresting people and killing them for being Christians. It could be in more subtle ways, like saying, hey, you Christians can meet, but you have to get everything you're going to say in your church services screened and approved by our government. The rulers and governments of this world want our ultimate allegiance and our ultimate obedience to be to them, not to God. And any time a world ruler or government calls for our ultimate allegiance to be to them, not God, they're serving Satan and setting themselves up as enemies of God and his people. So that's the first beast. There's also a second beast. And the second beast doesn't actually look scary at all. He looks cute and cuddly like a little lamb, something you'd let the kids play with at a petting zoo. But it's a lie. 
because he actually serves the dragon. His cuteness draws us in. It makes us feel comfortable around him. And then he feeds us lies that kill us. And who is the second beast? The second beast is all the societal structures and systems that lead us to hope in the government rather than God. Things like the media, false religion, could be business or education. It's anything in society that builds up a plausibility structure that makes us believe the government really can give us everything that we're meant to find in God alone. It's anything that leads us to worship the first beast. So when the media fills us with fear so that we'll place greater trust and hope in the government and its military power to keep us safe rather than God, the media is functioning as the second beast. When schools teach that the universe is the product of random chance so that we won't worship God, schools are functioning as the second beast. When a pastor gets up and tells a church to vote for a certain political candidate or a certain political party, because this person or this party is the only one who can fix our nation, that pastor is functioning as the second beast in that moment. The second beast is anyone or anything that draws our worship and hope away from God and redirects our worship and hope to that first beast, the government that tries to take God's place. And that second beast, it looks so harmless and kind. I mean, the messages are coming from people and institutions that we know and trust, but that makes it so much more dangerous because it makes it so much easier to fall into its trap. It looks cute and harmless like a little lamb, but it carries the venom of a cobra. And despite how powerful and dangerous these enemies are, they also are defeated. They are losers, just like the dragon they serve. But again, they're fighting with everything they have for as long as they can. And that's who our enemy is. So that's knowing our enemy. That's what we need to do. The second step is to know his tactics. And our Art of War quote for this point summarizes Satan's fighting tactics. So in war, the way is to avoid what is strong and strike at what is weak. I mean, isn't that what we see Satan doing all over this passage? He first tries to attack Jesus, not when Jesus is safe in heaven, but when he's born as a weak, fragile baby on earth. He just tries to eat him and be done with it. But when Satan sees that God has protected Jesus, he gives up and looks for another easier target. So he tries to attack this woman, the people of God, but God protects her too. So again, Satan gives up and looks for another easier target. And finally, we see at the end of chapter 12 that he chases after the woman's offspring. He knows that he can't fight or defeat the church as a whole because it's guarded and protected by God. So he comes after individual Christians to try and pick us off one by one because he's weak and he's a coward. So he stays away from what's strong and tries to strike at what is weak. And let me just point out in light of this, we're about to look at Satan's tactics in fighting us. But remember, like gazelle being hunted by a lion, we are weakest when we are on our own. All of Satan's tactics that we're about to look at, they lose their power significantly when we're surrounded by a group of Christians who can constantly redirect our focus back to God. It's when we're on our own, when we're isolated, that we start to fall into these traps and give him these small victories. And what are his tactics in fighting us? Well, the first one we see here is deception. We see in chapter 12, verse 9, 
that Satan is described as the deceiver of the whole world. And his deception comes in so many shapes and sizes. For example, one way he tries to deceive us is by making himself and his followers look like Jesus, so we'll follow them instead of Jesus. If you look at the description of the dragon in chapter 12, verse 3, we see that he has horns, he has crowns, he has the number seven. All of those things are associated with Jesus at other places in the book of Revelation. They show the perfection of Jesus' power. Satan tries to look like Jesus, so we'll believe that he actually also has perfect power. But it's a cheap imitation. It's a deception. Satan's power, the only way Satan's power is perfect is in being perfectly terrible. And it's not just him, but it's the beast too. The first beast has a mortal wound. Literally in Greek, it's a plague of death that gets healed. Now, who else in the Bible gets healed from death? Jesus. The dragon tries to make the first beast look like Jesus. So people will follow this beast instead of following Jesus. And it works. And then the second piece, the second beast does these signs like calling down fire from heaven, which if you remember from chapter 11, is the same sign the Holy Spirit gives the church to do. So the the second beast looks just like the Holy Spirit-empowered church. The dragon creates his own false trinity to deceive the earth about who he is and who God is. And the dragon is really good at deception. I mean, think about this. If the governments of the world just got up and said, worship and follow us, not God, no one would be fooled by that. We can all tell it's not a good idea when they're just blowing their own trumpet and, and trying to get us to follow them our, themselves. But when it's every part of society, education, business, media, even churches, spreading the message that our true hope actually lies in the government, oh, it suddenly becomes so easy to believe that the government can really save us. Satan deceives us by building plausibility structures so that people will follow him and his forces rather than God. He also deceives us in his fighting style itself. I'll give you a bonus Art of War quote here, because again, it just summarizes so well what he does. I will force the enemy to take our strength for weakness and our weakness for strength, and thus will turn his strength into weakness. I mean, how's this for deception? Satan has already lost the war, but he rampages against Christians as if he had a chance at victory. He's like a T-Rex with no teeth. He figures if he just keeps roaring loud enough and chasing after us, we're never going to look back to see that he's toothless. But it's all a lie. And then at the same time, he's managed to convince so much of the non-believing world that he doesn't exist. He set it up so that the church, who shouldn't fear him, because he can't harm us unless we let him, sometimes trembles in terror at the thought of him. And meanwhile, the world, who's deep in the grip of his power, is completely oblivious to the fact that he exists. He makes his strong enemies feel weak, and his weak enemies feel strong through deception. Satan is a master of deception, and he keeps trying to feed us lies in every single way possible, hoping that we'll bite at just one of them. So that's his first tactic. 
His second tactic is accusation. We see this in chapter 12, verse 10. He's called the accuser of the brothers. Now, in the Old Testament, we actually see a couple passages where Satan stands in God's presence and accuses God's followers directly to God's face. The most famous of these is probably in Job, where Satan just comes to God and says, oh, come on. Job only follows you and worships you because you bless him so much. But now we see Satan has been kicked out of heaven, so he can't do that anymore. And you know what's, what's great? You know why Satan can't accuse us directly to God anymore? I love this. So in the Old Testament, before Jesus had died to pay for the sins of his people, it, it could look like Satan had a valid argument. Oh, come on, God. How can you love and bless these people? Don't you see all their sin and failure? I mean, it wasn't a valid argument even then because the blood of Jesus covers all sin, past, present, and future. But it appeared valid at the time because Jesus hadn't died yet. But now that argument has been shown for the garbage it always was. Anytime Satan thinks of trying that crap, God just has to point to the blood of Jesus and say their sin is paid for, they are mine, it is done. So Satan can't accuse us to God anymore because the verdict is settled for all time. Isn't that awesome news? Isn't that exciting? But guess what? He's still an accuser. Oh, he can't accuse us to God? Fine, he'll accuse us to ourselves. He comes to us and he says, hey, I know about that affair you had 10 years ago. You can keep it secret from your friends and your family and your church, but you can't keep it secret from me. How can you call yourself a Christian? And guess what? If you're a Christian, his accusations have no more grounds when he says them to you than they do when he says them to God. The only question is whether you believe that's actually true. And maybe it's not an affair for you. Maybe it's a shady business deal you made. Maybe you cheated on a test. Maybe it's how rarely you read your Bible and how poorly you feel like you pray. His accusations have no power because of the blood of Jesus, but they gain power when we give them power. If we believe his accusation, if we believe we can't be a Christian or God can't really love us because of our past or current failures, we live in hiding. We refuse to run to the blood of Jesus for rescue. We refuse to confess our sins to the people around us and experience forgiveness and healing. And rather than experiencing the love and acceptance that God has for us and the delight, his delight in the fact that we're his children, we instead live with this deep sense of condemnation. We hide. And when we do that, we're out of the fight. Satan loves to pick off individual Christians and get us to drop out of the fight through accusation. But for Christians, his accusations have no valid grounds. So Satan deceives us. He accuses us. And then third, he persecutes us. Once he realizes he can't beat, he can't beat us, he decides, I'm just going to make life as difficult as possible for them while I still have the ability to fight. I mean, we see with the first beast, it says he conquers and persecutes the saints. With the second beast, he restricts our buying and selling to make life difficult for us. He does whatever he can to make life hard for the followers of God. 
because he's desperate. He knows he's lost. And so he figures maybe if he can just make life really miserable for us, we'll give up because we're too tired to keep fighting anymore. It's a desperation tactic because he knows he's already lost, but it's one that he uses and that works on many people. And while we're on Satan's strategies, this is probably a good place to discuss the mark of the beast at the end of chapter 13, because I'm guessing a lot of people have questions about it. Now, what is the mark of the beast? There are some people online who think that maybe the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. Is that true? Is the COVID vaccine the mark of the beast? No, I don't think so. Is it a tattoo or computer chip in that the government in the future is gonna require us to get put in our hands or our heads? Maybe, but I doubt it. Like remember, one, Revelation uses lots of symbolic imagery, and two, Satan is a master deceiver. Like if he did that tattoo computer chip thing, it would be super obvious. Maybe someday he'll try that. If it does happen in the future, I hope we'll be able to see it for what it so clearly is. But remember, John was writing to real churches that were living at the same time as he was almost 2,000 years ago. And he expected that this mark was something at work in their world at that time. So it must mean something in our world today beyond tattoos and computer chips, okay? And if we look at the bigger context of the Bible, specifically, again, the Old Testament, it gives us a little more insight into what this mark means in our world today. So if you look in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 9, and Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, God's people are commanded to have God's word bound on their hands and their forehead. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think anyone in the Bridge Church or actually any Christian I've ever met takes that literally as a command to tie Bible passages onto our bodies. And the reason that I say that is because I've never seen anyone in the Bridge Church or any Christian anywhere wearing Bible passages tied to our hands or our heads. Right? There are some Jewish people who do this, but I think generally most Christians I know would say that those Jewish people are misinterpreting this passage, that they're keeping the letter of the command, but missing the spirit of the command. And what's the spirit of the command? It's that God's word would have primary control in the way we live our day-to-day -day lives. Like our head is where we think and make decisions about the world. Our hands are what we use to work and accomplish things. So having God's words on our heads and our hands means that as we make decisions and as we do actions, God's word is the primary thing guiding us. And as you look at this mark of the beast, it goes on the same parts of our body, our hands and our head. So what does it mean to have the beast's mark in those places? Well, it means that Satan's ways, the world's ways, the opposite of God's ways, are the primary thing guiding our thoughts and actions as we go through day-to-day -day life. It's not about getting a tattoo or having a computer chip implanted into us. It's about thinking and living in a way that opposes God. And this number 666, what does that mean? Well, remember, throughout Revelation, seven is symbolic for perfection and completion. Six is just a little bit short of seven. It's never going to be seven which means it's imperfect, it's incomplete. And biblically, if you repeat something three times, you're saying it's that thing to the ultimate level. So 
take six and repeat it three times, six, 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 it means you've reached the ultimate level of incompletion and imperfection. You're completely incomplete. You're making decisions and taking actions through the world's lens and the world's ways, trying to become God, but you will never be God. And when we live that way, it marks us as belonging to the beast. So what could that mark look like in the real world? Well, just a couple ideas. Again, this is a couple ideas. It looks like much more than this, but just a couple things to get our brains going. If your go-to response when things don't go your way is to lash out in anger so you can intimidate people into doing what you want, that's the mark of the beast. If you're a completely different person at work or at school than you are at church so that you'll fit in and be accepted and be more likely to be liked and get promoted, that is the mark of the beast. If you ignore going to church or reading your Bible or praying, because you need to study for exams that are more important to you than God is, so you don't have time for any God stuff. That may be the mark of the beast. Anytime we let the world have power over our thoughts and actions rather than God, we are giving in to the mark of the beast. And when we refuse to play by the world's rules and get the beast's mark, what happens? Well, we're we lose productivity because we refuse to use and manipulate people for our own profit, and then we have less money. We're left out of the inner circle at work because we won't gossip and complain about people, so we're skipped over for promotions and we have less money. We miss out on the best job offers because we refuse to make school our God, and we have less money. Our buying and selling is restricted because we refuse to take the mark of the beast. Our enemy has powerful tactics and strong strategies for fighting us. So how are you doing so far? Is anyone feeling like, whoa, Eric, this enemy is so strong. Is there any way to beat him? Well, that's what we're gonna look at right now. Our final point, know how to beat him. And our art of war quote for this point is that victorious warriors win first and then go to war, while defeated warriors go to war first and then seek to win. That's the key to defeating our enemy. See, we have a powerful enemy. He has a huge army at his back. He has powerful, deceptive strategies to defeat us. But guess what? The battle is already won. Not through us and our accomplishments, but through Jesus. Which means that to defeat this enemy, there isn't anything we have to do. We just have to trust in and hold on to Jesus and the victory he already won. Like Sun Tzu recommends, we don't go to war with our enemy and then seek to win. We join the fight because the battle has already been won. And I want to point out two key elements of what it looks like for us to join the fight in this passage. The first is endurance and faith. Chapter 13, verse 10 says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And you know what totally sucks about endurance? Endurance is only endurance if you keep going when it gets hard. So a call for endurance right here is a call to keep trusting in Jesus, to keep holding on to our faith in him, even when it gets hard. Like I said earlier, part of Satan's goal for Christians is to make life so hard for us that we just want to give up. I'm tired of being single because no one I date is okay waiting till marriage for sex. 
It's better to stop following God's commands about sex than to keep suffering for him. Oh, I'm tired of everyone around me having more money than I do because they're not as stuck on trying to be people of integrity. Maybe it's time to stop thinking about what's right and instead look out for myself. These are real temptations that Christians face. And if we give in to them, they draw us away from Jesus. But just enduring, not giving in, no matter how hard the temptation gets, is part of victory. As we've been saying all along in this series, our suffering is not a sign that God is losing. Actually, we see in this passage, our suffering is a sign that God is winning and our desperate enemy is doing all he can to prolong the fight because he knows he's already lost. He's attacking our bodies because he's already lost the fight for our souls. And when we resist his attacks, when we hold on to Jesus through faith and endure, no matter how hard it gets, when we live as overcomers, we join Jesus in winning the victory over Satan. So that's the first tactic, endurance and faith. The second we see in chapter 12, verse 11, the word of our testimony. I want you to listen to this verse. Listen closely. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Did you hear that? Who wins the victory over Satan? Who conquers Satan? And we all know the answer should be Jesus, right? Jesus defeats Satan on the cross. But that's not what this verse says. The verse says they have conquered them. And the they is the Christians who Satan accuses before God. Have you ever realized if you are a Christian, you are a victor over Satan? Isn't that incredible? Like, doesn't that get you pumped up and excited to jump into the fight, especially since the fight's already been won? We're on the winning side. And check out how you and I conquer or overcome Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So the blood of the lamb, trusting in Jesus so that all Satan's accusations against us lose their power. That's one way we defeat him. But also the word of their testimony. Have you ever realized every time we share our faith, we're actually participating in spiritual warfare and joining Jesus in defeating Satan. Each time you and I tell our friends and family and coworkers and neighbors about Jesus, Jesus' victory over Satan becomes our victory over Satan. Opening your mouth to tell others about Jesus is a spiritual punch in the face to Satan. That's what we're told in this verse. And how is that the case? Because every time we share our faith, we are combating Satan's deception with the truth. Every time we share our faith, we're inviting people to leave Satan's side and join the victorious side of Jesus in this fight. We're demonstrating through our speaking that God matters to us more than Satan and his lies. Church, we fight a defeated enemy, and the victory that has already been won over him becomes our victory when we share about our Savior with those around us. So church, let me close with one more challenging Art of War quote. One may know how to conquer without being able to do it. We've been saying all along, John wrote the book of Revelation for us so that we can live as conquerors, as overcomers. And the pathway to conquering is clear. Enduring faith in Jesus that treasures him above all the empty lies and promises of this world. 
It's a path of standing for Jesus, enduring in our faith, no matter what it costs us. And on one level, we can all be conquerors. It's a free gift available to everyone. But on another level, it's going to cost us. And there's daily temptation to give up and just quit the fight. So let me ask you, will you live as a conqueror this week? You know how to do it, but will you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this insight that you've given us into the spiritual war that we live in the middle of. And God, we pray this week that you would give us your perspective on the world. Help us to see Satan's lies for what they are. Help us to see the power of Jesus' blood over the accusations of our enemy. And give us endurance to stand for you no matter how hard it gets. Father, I pray that you would make us a church that endures, that overcomes, that conquers our enemy, that's bold in sharing our faith, and that transforms our world for your kingdom because we're on the winning side. God, we love you. Help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So a quick reminder, if you have questions about the sermon, you can send them to Les through Zoom chat. And in just a minute, Les will come on and lead uh, question and answer discussion time. All right, Les, do we have some questions? Uh, yeah, we've got um, three questions here. And I just want to encourage everyone as we're as as Eric is um, answering some of these questions and you've got more questions uh, coming into your mind, don't hesitate to um, put it on the chat window here with me. Um, okay, uh, shall I go through them with you, Eric? Sure, yeah. So the first one is uh, if if the first beast is government systems that oppose God, does that mean the idea of government is bad or evil and Christians should oppose the government? Uh, so that's a great question. The answer is no. Uh, we see in the teaching of the Bible, um, the letters of the New Testament, that the government is a good gift given to us by God to bring stability and order in society because we live in a broken world. Um, and that Christians are called to obey the government and follow the laws of the society that they live in. So government itself is a, a good thing, not a bad thing. But because we live in a broken world and governments are run by sinners, there's this natural tendency for the government to want to move beyond the good power that God gave it and try to take the ultimate power that only belongs to God. And we see, like I said in the sermon, we see that throughout history, like governments continuously promise a future that they can never actually give and call their people to a level of allegiance that they never deserve to have from their people. Um, so one example of this would be like in the Middle Ages, during the Crusades, the Pope came along and said, if you come fight in the Crusades, you'll get a better eternity in heaven. Like that's not, that's not the Pope's promise to be able to make, right? The Pope doesn't have that power. Um, but he promised a future he could never give and called for people to give their ultimate allegiance to him rather than God. Um, and he, in that moment, was acting as the first beast. Um, we see it with Hitler in World War II. Like, you follow me, you make me your ruler, and I'll make Germany the greatest nation on earth. 
again, big promises that he couldn't make and then calls them to do these evil, horrible things because they've given their ultimate allegiance to him. Uh, and again, those are extreme examples. It probably doesn't happen that extremely with most governments even. But there's this tendency among pretty much all governments, even ones that call themselves Christian, to make these huge promises, to call for more allegiance than they deserve. And in doing that, they set them up as enemies of God. Anytime a government calls for people to give them the ultimate allegiance that only God deserves, that's, that's evil. And so, no, we should not resist our governments. We should obey our governments. Our government is a good gift from God. But if our government is resisting God in a certain area, we should resist the government in that area, specific that specific area. Okay, thank you. I've uh, got a bunch more questions coming in now. I'll go through them one at a time. Um, uh, let's see, sorry. Just scrolling up because it's quite a number now, which is great. If, okay. If there are um, similar questions, you can group some of them together and we may not have time for all of them. That's okay. If you sent in a question and we don't have time for it, you can just message me later on and I'll be happy to chat more with you about it offline. Okay. Uh, the next question is, if the end times have been lasting for over 2000 years, what do you think Jesus meant when he said, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened? Um, so I think, uh, that would be what a reference to Matthew 23, uh, I think, which is, uh, what's called, or sorry, Matthew 24, which is called the Olivet Discourse, I think is where he said that. Um, and I think what's happened there is his disciples have just come to him and they've made a comment about how beautiful, the temple is, if I remember right. Yeah, so Jesus is at the temple. He goes away and he sees his disciples come and point out how beautiful the buildings of the temple are. And Jesus answers, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came and said, tell us, when will these things be? Like the, the temple being torn down. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, from their perspective, they expected that that was one question, that the temple will not be torn down and destroyed until the end of all things come and Jesus comes back. Um, looking back historically from our perspective, we can see that actually that's two different things. Um, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Jesus still has not come back. And so I think, and I could be wrong, and there are people who would disagree with me on this, but I think that... Jesus is saying the temple's destruction is going to happen within this generation, um, but that there's still a future him coming back, that the last days is still encompassed up until from the time of Jesus' life on earth until he comes back again. Um, but the, these things will not happen until this generation passes away, I think is referring to the destruction of the temple specifically. Okay, thank you. Um, the next question is, why does God allow Satan to persecute the saints? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and again, I think this comes back to what we saw uh, a couple weeks ago in the seals, is that while Satan intends harm against us in persecuting us, God actually is using that continuously for our good. Um, what we see in the New Testament throughout 
is that God uses suffering in the lives of Christians to purify us, to strengthen our faith, to draw us closer to him. And so God is actually allowing Satan to do this because what Satan, it's, it's like the story of Joseph, you know, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery and then Joseph rises to power in Egypt and they come eventually once they realize who he is and they're like, we're so sorry we did this. And, and Joseph's like, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph went through tons of suffering and evil during that time, but ultimately it put him in the place where he had the skills he needed to rule over the land of Egypt, where he had the right social connections that he could be put in touch with Pharaoh at the right time to be put in that position of power to save tons of lives. Um, and we see that theme throughout the Bible, uh, the death of Jesus. It's evil of Satan brings suffering, but then that suffering brings life and hope. And so God is constantly using Satan Satan's doing these things with an evil intent, but God knows that ultimately they're going to work out for good. And so God allows Satan to do these things because God has a bigger perspective, bigger plan, and God can see how the things that Satan intends for evil, God's going to work for good. Uh, and so he lets him keep doing it because he knows that in the end, it's going to be good. Okay, thanks. We got three more questions here, uh, Eric. I think we have sure. a little bit for that um who are they addressing with this revelation what group is it written to yeah so in chapter one uh john addresses it to seven churches um in this area in turkey and chapters two and three have a series of seven individual letters to each of those churches so it's the church in ephesus smyrna pergamum thyatira sardis philadelphia and laodicea and those were seven historic churches that existed as John was writing this. They, you would have just traveled in a circle to go from one church to the next to the next. So it would have just dropped this letter off at all these churches along the route. Uh, but at the same time, seven is, like I said, a symbolic number in Revelation for completeness. And so these weren't the only seven churches in that geographic area. Some got skipped over. Uh, and I think it's quite likely that they got skipped over because the number seven shows us that, yes, these are seven literal historic churches, but they're also acting symbolically, standing in as a picture for all churches throughout all time. So it's written primarily to them, but it's also written for us. Okay, thank you. Um, and, and while you mentioned the significance of the number uh, seven, uh, again, one of the questions asked was, uh, with regard to the number 666, and I know you mentioned um, the significance of the six, but can you uh, summarize that one more time, um, uh, what, what six means? Yeah, so um, six is, it's one less than seven. It's, it's incomplete. Um, I mean, also biblically, if you look at it, um, it, it says in the verse that it's the number of a man. It could be translated, it's the number of humanity, actually. Uh, and if you think about it, like in... In Genesis, humanity is created on the sixth day. Um, and so six is the number that's not quite to perfection. It's just short of perfection. It's humanity's way of doing things in a fallen world rather than God's way of doing things. And when you repeat that three times, it's taking humanity's ways to their ultimate extreme, doing things according to the world's ways rather than God's ways and actually standing in opposition to God through the way that we're thinking and living. Great, thanks. Um, you think you could take a couple more, Eric? 
<laughs> uh, probably. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, why is God not rebuilding, rebuilding the world right now or letting more people join the new land? Um, so biblically, the, the picture that we see is that um, when Jesus was on earth during his life, death, resurrection, he brought God's kingdom to our world, but he didn't bring it completely. And so living between the first and second comings of Jesus, we're in this strange time called the already not yet, um, which means God's kingdom is already here on the world, but it's not yet here in its completeness or fullness. And so we see God coming and, and working in our world. His kingdom is spreading and advancing. The gospel is going out and people are being brought from death to life and, and being brought from Satan's side to God's side and, and awesome things are happening. So there is um, people coming in and God is rebuilding, but the completion, the completeness of that won't happen in its fullness until Jesus comes again. And I think because we live in this in-between time, where God's kingdom is spreading and advancing, but also Satan is ramping up his opposition to us because he hates what's the exciting things God's kingdom is doing. It can often be hard to see the good things that are happening in that positive perspective. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not there. It just means sometimes we need to, to learn to adjust what we're expecting when we look for it. Okay. Um, a, a tough question. Um, John MacArthur, in defying the U.S. government on social distancing by continuing to have face-to-face -face Sunday service, what are your thoughts on that <laughs> in relation to today's message? Um, I mean, so that's, that's a much uh, bigger question um, that probably requires a lot of more background. Um, I think... I think that he is probably labeling certain things as persecution that I would not label as persecution. Um, I mean, if I haven't investigated that story a ton, but from what I understand, they were like, they had the right to meet outside and they were like, no, we must meet inside. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, and so it's not that the government was restricting them from meeting or saying that they couldn't teach certain things or anything like that. It's just, the government was saying you need to meet in a, a, a healthy and safe way if you're going to meet. And they were saying, no, we want to meet in the way that we want to meet. Um, and so I think that's probably pushing too far and probably not a wise thing to do. Okay. Yeah, I think that that question can be, uh, uh, we can have a further discussion on that. Sure. Uh, yeah. During the week. Uh, one last question. Uh, would, would those who believe in other religions, such as Buddhists and Muslims, also get the mark of 666 on them just because they believe in another religion? Um, well, so I think the, the, the fundamental difference between Christianity and any other religion is that in any other religion, we do enough good things to earn our way up to God. It's like if there's a mountain and God's at the top. In any other religion, I, through my effort, claw and climb my way up to get as close to God as possible. Um, and really that's, that's fundamentally how the world works too. Like in my profession or career, I want to get to the top of the corporate ladder. So I'm going to claw and climb my way up there. Um, I'm going to 
if I want lots of money, I'm going to save and invest and do all these things to try and get my way up there. Uh, and what's fundamentally different about Christianity is it's the one religion where God actually comes down to us and God rescues us, not based on what we've done, but based on his love for us. And so when you think of 666 as operating at thinking and acting according to the world's ways rather than God's ways, like ultimately any system that relies on our effort and our accomplishments to get to the top of that mountain, whether it's trying to follow the world's success model, whether it's following another religion that says that that's how success with God works, ultimately boils down to the same thing is that we're relying on the world's ways rather than God's ways. Um, and so again, I don't believe that the 666 is a, a literal physical mark that will have on us, just like in those passages in the Old Testament, I don't believe that they were literally supposed to tie Bible passages onto themselves. I think it's more of a, a metaphorical thing of, of the way that you live life is dictated and guided by this way rather than this way. Uh, and so in that sense, um, yeah, followers of other religions would have the mark of the beast because at the most fundamental level, they're relying on their own efforts to get to God rather than trusting in God to save them. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you, uh, everyone, for posting these questions. And thank you, Eric, for answering them.